Hello and welcome to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. My name is Derek McCush. Esther Degemans is an expert in programs that respond to conflict-related sexual violence. She worked for several years in humanitarian programs on sexual and gender-based violence in several countries in Africa and the Middle East. She is the executive director at the Global Survivors Fund and the Makwege Foundation. In this episode, she was interviewed by Katie Coyle and Pamela Zambrano, two of the five students selected by the Center for Human Rights and Global Justice at the NYU School of Law to take part in its Transitional Justice Leadership Program. Katie is now an associate in a litigation law firm in Manhattan, and Pamela is an associate in Mexico City. In times of war, rape makes a particularly effective weapon because it not only destroys its direct victims, but entire communities. Research organizations have also estimated that sexual violence is becoming increasingly prevalent in societies experiencing conflict. Taking the DRC, for example, researchers from Harvard discovered that rapes committed by civilians had increased 17-fold in the past decade. This is despite increased recognition of sexual violence in international criminal law as a crime against humanity and as a tool of genocide. Despite such efforts and increased reparations, sexual violence in conflict continues at astounding rates. In the recent invasion of the Ukraine, for example, the Russian military has been reported to use rape as a strategy and weapon of war and terror. As of the 3rd of June, the Office of United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights had received reports of 124 alleged acts of conflict-related sexual violence across the Ukraine. Many argue that the increase in sexual violence in conflict is due to the root causes of sexual violence itself. Sexual violence does not occur in a vacuum. The root causes of CRSV include gender inequality, discrimination, poverty, and marginalization. Founded in 2019, by Nobel Peace Prize winners Dennis Mufage and Nadia Murad, the Global Survivors Fund aims to address issues such as these. The Global Survivors Fund does this through working with survivors of sexual violence to gain a victim-focused input on how to achieve reparations. Today we are joined by Esther Dingemans, the Executive Director of the Global Survivors Fund. Since 2000, Esther has dedicated her career to the prevention of conflict-related sexual violence and ensuring quality care for survivors. As well as working with UN agencies in Guinea, Egypt, Ivory Coast, Darfur, Colombia, and Syria, Esther has additionally led capacity building projects in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. Esther's area of expertise includes community-driven projects and holistic care for survivors and survivor-centered reparations. So thank you so much for joining us today, Esther. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to come and talk to us here at NYU. I wanted thank to- you. Thank you, Katie, for having me and for uh, shining light on such an important issue that affects us all. Thank you so much for being with us. So I want to lead in with our first question, Esther, about your journey and what led you to this work. So our first question relates to how you got involved with this very important work. Um, I know you started your career as a social worker in the Netherlands, which eventually led you to work on the prevention of gender-based violence in conflict situations. 
Could you tell us a little bit more about what led you to this work? Sure, you're right. I started uh, 25 years ago working as a social worker with refugees in in the Netherlands. That's where I'm from. And after one or two years into that work, I, I realized that I was probably not made for the one-on-one -on -one support. I found it really hard, and especially the the suffering from uh, the suffering of the refugees in Holland, particularly that sheer isolation that they lived in. Uh, while they were really dealing with intense trauma, it made me feel really powerless. And I thought perhaps I can better use my skills by working with refugees in countries where at least they are living together and, and can receive support from each other somehow. So that's where I started. I went to Guinea in West Africa, where I was working with um, children from Liberia and Sierra Leone refugees. And I was really shocked because at the time, uh, Katie, there was not much dialogue about conflict-related sexual violence. It, it was the time when the first reports came out about sexual exploitation uh, by humanitarian personnel and by peacekeepers. But what I got to, to learn that was actually the, the, the children that were so vulnerable to that type of uh, sexual exploitation and abuse had, in fact, many of them had already experienced sexual violence in conflict before they came to Guinea as part of the war in, in Sierra Leone and in Liberia. And no one was really talking about that and, and what made their situation so specific and why they were so marginalized in the refugee camps. So uh, I felt that needed to change and I started uh, working. The first project was uh, with Liberian teenagers, girls. Often they were mothers to already several children because of the sexual violence that they had endured in their own country. And we started uh, a project to help them uh, pick up their lives and finding a way back into their community. Wow, Esther, that sounds like an incredible journey that you went through to get involved with this type of work. Um, even just from your answer there, you've touched on a lot of issues related to sexual violence and conflict, such as the cycle of violence that people become trapped in once it begins. And, and then also children who themselves are survivors born of rape and conflict. Um, speaking of this work more generally, could you tell us about the work that you do? And when we talk about the issue of sexual violence and conflict, what is it exactly that we're talking about? Yeah, that's that's important. Uh, so when we speak of conflict-related sexual violence, it means that we're talking about sexual violence that happens in or around a conflict or after a conflict, and that has a direct or an indirect link with that conflict. So uh, the link, for example, can be seen in that sexual violence is used really to harm or even to destroy an opposing group. You mentioned uh, how sexual violence can be used as a as a form of genocide in the, in the introduction. Uh, it's also used to to really terrorize communities, to instill fear in a population, to make them leave, for example. Uh, and we see uh, that it is used as as a, as a tactic in wars to to break the resistance. We see that now in Ukraine, uh, to to force confessions, often false confessions, to punish, etc. So there's a link directly or indirectly with the conflict. But Katie, perhaps what I find important also to shed a bit of light on is what it actually looks like because we often talk about conflict-related sexual violence in, in rather dry terms, perhaps. But uh, it is actually really brutal forms of sexual violence. So um, 
mentioning a few examples, gang rape, uh, often sexual violence committed in front of family members, children, including children, rape in public places, uh, enslavement, sexual torture. Often it actually, it, it, it also involves using objects such as sticks or, or weapons. Uh, it can take the form of genital mutilation. Maybe also important to mention is that it's not only used against women, but also men, and not only women of a certain and men of a certain age, but really old ages. The, the oldest woman, for example, that I know that was subjected to sexual violence in conflict was 84, but it also targets really young babies, which is horrific. And it's perhaps so horrific that we often don't talk about these details, where I do really think it's important, despite it being so painful and sensitive but I really feel that if we don't also show that that shame and the blame and and the silencing it really remains with the victims whereas we should really reverse that and and shame the perpetrators for the horrific crimes that they've committed. Yes certainly I, I feel with a lot of these cases it sounds as though the shame that really should be shared with the perpetrators is is somehow given to the survivors of the terrible crimes. So Moving on to the work of the Global Survivors Fund, could you tell me about the fund itself and how it was created and what the journey was that led to its creation? Yeah, sure. You mentioned in the introduction eh, that uh, the Global Survivors Fund was founded by Nobel Peace Prize laureates Dr. Dennis Mukwege and Ms. Nadia Murad. And the purpose was really to enhance access to reparations for survivors of conflict-related sexual violence. But I think it's important to mention that that work builds on the power and the inspiration of a network. It's a global network of victims and survivors of conflict-related sexual violence. The network is called SEMA, which means speak out in Swahili, but it unites women from all over the world, all continents, all ages, all religions and cultures. And uh, it's an activist network, so they really uh, fight for, for change. They are all women who have either experienced sexual slavery, uh, wartime rape, etc., the examples that I mentioned before. But it's also this network that, um, when they came together a number of years ago, said we should prioritize reparation. So they actually made a strong call to us to start establishing an, an initiative really dedicated to reparations for victims of sexual violence in conflict. So since then, we've been working with them in establishing uh, uh, our organization. And our purpose is also really to keep them involved, survivors. They're really at the heart of everything we do. They're in our board, they're in our technical advisory panel, etc. But most importantly, they really lead on the on the design uh, of our projects. So that's how the, the fund came about. Perhaps, Katie, shall I mention a little bit about what we do? Because sometimes it can be a little bit uh, confusing when we talk about reparations, which is really a state responsibility, state or other duty bearers, such as the perpetrators. And they have, of course, the obligation to provide reparations. And what we do is, first of all, we recognize that it is their responsibility first and foremost. And our responsibility for our task is actually to encourage states to take that responsibility. But what we also see historically is that uh, very few states actually do award reparations to victims of sexual violence. It can take generations if they uh, take uh, if they occur at all. Uh, so what we try to do is to really work also through grassroots organizations in um, providing what we call interim reparative measures. But it is projects that are designed by survivors, really starting for the quest from the question, what does repair mean 
to them what what is needed for them and that often uh, then leads to projects that provide financial support, uh, education grants, uh, business support, uh, medical care, psychological care. So all these elements that survivors need to start uh, picking up their lives that are often completely destroyed. I guess you've touched on it there a bit, but for the listeners, I was wondering if we could go into the definition of reparations and, and what we mean exactly when we say that you know for victims what does reparations mean but I feel like you've described it quite well there and that it's a way for survivors to to pick up their lives after these incidents have occurred. It's really uh, it's it's, there is a definition which uh, encompasses the compensation that survivors are entitled to also uh, guarantees of non-repetition, which could take the form of, of law reforms, um, rehabilitation, which could be, for example, the medical, often lifelong medical support is actually needed. But it's really also about satisfaction and the rec- recognition. And that is really something that we see with victims from around the world. They they yearn for a rec- for a recognition, for a state uh, offering an apology, but also for their uh, community leaders, members in the community, their own family members really uh, recognizing that survivors are not to blame, but that harm was done to them and that for that reason they have uh, certain rights. That leads me, Esther, to another question. You mentioned that uh, the Global Survivors Fund shows a survivor-led independent fund and the role that that can play in providing reparations, but that's not separate per se from state-led reparations and how do you see those two working together like an independent fund for reparations alongside other support that might be needed or or state-recognized reparations? How do those two connect or how do those two work together have you seen in your experience? You know states, states sometimes are not unwilling to start the repair process. But what we try to do is to encourage them to speed that process up. And what we see is quite effective in that extent is to just start, start with civil society organizations and survivors on reparative projects that I just mentioned. But what we try to do then is to engage states really in that process so that our work can act as a catalyst and shows governments, look, reparations are affordable, it's feasible, this is how it can work, but also really demonstrating that life-changing impact on survivors' lives and that way really motivating the government to scale up that work and set up its own domestic reparation program. So I think the two go go side by side. It's the advocacy work, but also the act really doing now. And then a third pillar of our work is when governments are ready to set up a reparation program is to give them also that support, technical support, for example, to make sure that these programs are really conducive to what survivors uh, of sexual violence want and need. That certainly sounds like a very strong form of advocacy, almost advocating through showing that it is, is exactly. possible. So it seems very strong. In previous talks, you've addressed the stigma that victims of sexual violence face. And so our next question, I wanted to address why the stigma, in your opinion, remains so prevalent in society today or generally, because I know this is one of the greatest barriers that organizations face when treating survivors of sexual violence. Yeah, it's very it's 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 very complex, and I think every context is different. 
Um, and it's true, there's often really deeply rooted societal factors which come into play in stigmatization of victims of sexual violence in different communities. But what you also see is actually the same patterns across the world. Victims are quite systematically blamed and shamed and, and silenced in specific con conflicts. For example, the fact that the enemy was uh, the perpetrator can also lead to a specific form of stigmatization, especially if that sexual violence then led to pregnancies. Often uh, the mothers and the children can then really face particular harsh forms of discrimination and often lifelong discrimination and injustice, children being called specific names, often along the lines of enemy child, etc. But I think also important to mention is that we shouldn't be misled and think that uh, this shaming and blaming only happens in certain countries or societies or cultures, whether it's in Europe or in Africa or Asia, Latin America and so on. Uh, we see the same patterns. If you look, for example, at uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, what happened there, sexual violence was really used as a weapon of war on a massive scale, uh, but it was hardly talked about in the aftermath of that war. For years and for years, and most victims felt it was not safe. They would indeed face exclusion if they would openly talk about it. Very little support for them, and all of that really adds to the stigma. Maybe one other thing to mention is that stigma is often associated with the societal norms, etc. But there's an additional stigma, and that we're really learning about that more and more. And that is the stigma that's actually a result of the consequences of the sexual violence itself. For example, uh, victims who suffer severe, severe psychological problems for, for, um, can't take care of their children, for example, uh, or they've been so injured that they lose their livelihoods or they are maybe sent away from their families. They live with fistula, etc. All of these consequences really add to that stigma that the society sees them as of less value somehow and less, less, um, yeah, less as a person. And it's exactly these forms uh, of uh, this type of stigma, I think, that can be addressed through reparations. I, I'd like to, Katie, maybe I can mention an example that really struck me. And um, it, it's just something that, that I'm, I'm starting to also discover. But uh, last week I was in Holland in The Hague with the same network that I just mentioned, the SEMA network of the Global Network of Victims and Survivors of Sexual Violence. And um, there were a few women there who had been imprisoned in Syria. What, what they told me is that they have been subjected not only to systematic sexual violence, often up till they were unconscious. But what also a com was apparently a common practice there was to put hormones in the water, and uh, which were the victims, which the, the, the people in the prison were forced to drink. That has created really immense reproductive health problems for the victims, such as years of delay in their, in their uh, menstrual cycle, uh, but also not being able to have children, early menopause, etc. And that's a form of reproductive violence. But can you imagine that this really adds to the stigma as well? If as a result of this, you can't uh, have children, for example, that in addition, that in itself is a factor for, for exclusion. So I think that's important to mention that aspect of stigma. It's quite astounding and shocking, the creativity that's sometimes employed in the tactics that are used by perpetrators when committing acts of reproductive violence or sexual violence. And uh, thank you for sharing that, that case study with us. It's, it's very shocking, but I think it's very important. 
that we know these things. And as the international community, we are aware of these types of things and the new forms of violence that are emerging. I know we were previously discussed some shocking case studies of what people have faced in terms of stigma in their society and also the issues that stigmatized or those who are stigmatized face when they also suffer a lot of medical issues and that compounds the issue further. But in one way, there are other stories of success, victims and survivors really managing to reclaim their lives after what's happened. And I think a powerful example of this is what has been seen with the Pansy Foundation, who I know are closely related with the Global Survivors Fund. And I know in previous talks that you have noticed the Pansy Foundation have survivors who are recognized for the struggles that they've overcome and, and they're treated as heroes in their mm. communities. So I was interested for you to tell us a little bit about the story of the Pansy Foundation, what the organization is and how their positive attitudes came to be. Yeah, it's true. Pansy Foundation really, really serves as our inspiration in many different ways. But Ponzi Foundation started actually as a hospital in Eastern DRC when the conflict broke out there more than 20 years ago. And uh, the hospital was uh, founded by Dr. Dennis Mugwega, who is also the president of our board and the founder of the Global Survivors Fund. He's a surgeon. He was. He still is a surgeon. And uh, at the time, he thought he was going to be working on on, uh, maternal and newborn health as he was specialized in obstetrical and gynecological care. But uh, instead, unfortunately, he was actually forced to specialize in care for victims of conflict-related sexual violence, brutal sexual violence, like I mentioned before, including in DRC, again, including really small children, older women, etc. And what they soon realized was that the medical care was, was not enough. A woman who body might be recovering but whose spirit really doesn't want to live on at all can actually not fully heal and uh, someone who is undergoing surgery but is actually only worried about uh, children being left alone children being ostracized not having anything to eat etc their their physical healing is not going to be successful so they soon realized actually we need to do much more than medical care but we need to do the whole package and that's what they call holistic care and that includes really really uh, profound psychological care for the victims indeed also the medical component but then also thinking about the livelihoods and legal care for those that who want to actually pursue justice. So that's the Ponzi model. But what I find particularly inspiring in this model is the compassion. I haven't seen that in any of the countries where I had worked before, in any of the projects that I led myself, the real compassion for the victims. The moment that they are entering the system, the hospital, they are, they are treated like, like, like heroes, like you're saying, like war war victims who deserve to be cherished, who deserve uh, to be supported in all possible ways. And it was in Ponzi that was that it was actually the first time that I really saw something that I had not seen before, and that was women who are victims of sexual violence standing on stage and saying, yes, I'm a victim of sexual violence. Yes, I have a child born of rape, and I love this child, and I am proud of this child, and um, and and I have rights. And then getting a big applause. So that's what I mean when, yeah, a, a very positive model about showing how things should be. Wow, that's definitely a great way to recognize the struggles that people have overcome. Because really, 
victims or survivors of sexual violence, um, they really are very strong people to to overcome this and then to be able to stand up. It's really fantastic and to also send a positive message that will hopefully overcome stigma that is so unfortunately seen in society. And And also, if I can add, it's, it's a way to change their story. It's a way to say, I'm not only a victim of sexual violence. I am also a mother. I'm also a woman. I'm also a bunch of different things. And I don't need that label. Oh, exactly. It's a, it's a great way to address this, this kind of violence. And I think that this leads me to the next question. That is, what are the biggest challenges that we are currently facing to prevent reparations for victims of sexual violence? Hmm. That's a good question. And I think a lot of it is in political will still, unfortunately, because the frameworks are there. Eh? Whereas historically, uh, reparations uh, mostly focused on, on states. This individual right to reparations under international law is, is, is now widely recognized. Uh, but unfortunately, governance, governments are not yet taking that responsibility always. Um, it's perhaps also related to the sensitivities of this of this particular form of violence. Uh, victims not always feeling safe, again related also to the stigma, to, to come out and to speak about uh, what has happened to them, contrary to what I just described at, at Ponzi Foundation. Um, and that sort of also leads, or there's unfortunately still an existing belief that sexual violence is, is a collateral damage of war. Um, and that, with that, often victims are not even recognized as victims of war. An example, what I find interesting is, is Kosovo. It's a, it's a good example of that. It took 20 years for civil society organizations to actually lobby for victims of sexual violence, which was sexual violence was systematically used, to be recognized as victims of war, to get that status. Whereas, for example, widows, uh, people living with a disability, uh, the veterans, they had already that status of victims of war, but victims of sexual violence didn't. So that's one of the, one of the challenges. Then related also, I think, to to the political will is, is states yeah not making it a priority. Often the other the other reconstruction efforts come first before we start thinking about the victims, the reconstruction of the infrastructures, etc. Can take years and years before governments start thinking about um, reparations. And then when once these programs are established, it's it's the big challenge is the bureaucracy, the complex bureaucracy around it. Often the the procedures for actually accessing then reparations are incredibly complex, not conducive to survivors' needs. Sometimes not not respecting confidentiality, etc. So there's yeah there's many challenges. When you talk about bureaucracy, um, I'm I'm seeing everything from the Mexican perspective, in which we also have currently a conflict with the um, with all the problems that we are having related with um, security and delinquency. And, and for example, in Mexico, we created a commission to attend specific to victims, and this special state commission it was created after a 
legal reform that was was enacted to address the problems that victims were facing because they couldn't access to reparations. But now this commission is creating new bureaucracies because you not only need to go to the prosecutor office, you also need to go to this commission. And mm -hmm. for the victims, it's so exhausting. Maybe it's easier because, for example, now with this commission, for example, you don't need judicial decisions that says that you face um, sexual violence. You don't need that. You can go straight to this commission. But even though there are like thousands of thousands of different little bureaucracy procedures that now the victims, they just are exhausted. They just face this horrible trauma and then they have to face the all this bureaucracy trauma, a second mm -hmm. trauma, this trauma to access to justice. Yeah. So there are so many, so many challenges. Even once, and you know, like as you said, now that we have all these, um, all this law, all all these laws, all these international treaties, even though several steps that we have to take in order to get real operations. And also I think that, that that that's the thing, and I'm sure that we are going to talk about that later, but what is real reparations? What is an effective reparation? Yeah, and I think what you're saying is spot on in when it comes to the process because real reparations, what we hear from victims, are not only about the the end, but it's the entire process that needs to be reparative. And these layers of bureaucracy, but also the attitudes towards victims don't are sometimes not reparative at all. Um, what we really advocate for, of course, is to develop these projects, these reparation mechanisms and the procedures, etc., to draft them, to really develop them with survivors. That, in our view, is the only way really going forward uh, to avoid that these procedures are uh, not reparative, but even worse, can be can be damaging. That's interesting. What we've touched on from your examples, um, particularly often seen in, in commissions, and that sometimes the process can be re-traumatizing for victims, and there may be an arduous process like in certain states where there is prohibitive legal fees for communities that really do not have an income per se, and then accessing the legal system. There's so many barriers that victims face. Um, and I think sometimes, and in many cases, actually, even when there may be a successful legal case that's taken, uh, survivors may not be granted the reparations that they're entitled to, even once the court issues those. Um, what do you believe would be the most effective ways to ensure that they are followed through from start to finish? I think important to 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 sketch perhaps a little bit um, 
the reality or the chances that victims truly have to access reparations through criminal uh, procedures, because of course, what will, most victims of sexual violence in conflict actually don't have access to to justice, to legal justice, to start with, because often they can't identify the perpetrators. Perhaps they are from an armed group of another country. They don't know who they are. Are often they're. Um, they're raped in, in dark prison cells, etc. So there's many reasons why victims actually don't have access to, to justice in the first place. But then also the system themselves, right? They're not often set up really to be uh, handling these mass, mass crimes, and uh, especially not in a way that it is really responding to what survivors want and need. But then for those that do go through, that do really uh, start a process and uh, pursue justice, I think one thing that is really important is to start looking at this from a reparation lens from the very beginning. So that means, for example, not only looking at the offences, but also really documenting the harms. And then uh, and then start talking with victims about what repair means to them from, from the early, from the onset. Yeah, I think those are the, 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 the comments there. But all in all, uh, domestic reparation programs, so where there is no court involved, I think uh, is the answer for the majority of victims. They still come from the duty bearers, from the states, and that's important. Survivors really need to hear that acknowledgement from states that their rights were violated, which is a form of reparations. Um, yeah. That is, I think, where that's also where the Global Survivors Fund really puts its its focus to make sure that uh, no victim is left behind. And Esther, I know there that you mentioned as well that it's very important that reparations are incorporated as early as, as possible. And and one example that comes to my mind currently, unfortunately, is the conflict in the Ukraine. Um, as an example of a crisis situation where reparations or actors are trying to incorporate reparations as early as is possible. Yeah, I think the, the, there's an opportunity there. There is really, what, what we hear from victims, reparations come too late, too little, too late. Uh, of course, the effect of reparations is, is biggest when survivors need it most and that is often quite soon after the crimes were committed and certainly not generations later so we really argue for uh, paving the way for reparations early on in a conflict even and uh, i think this is where the ukrainian government has an opportunity um they're they're showing uh, quite some openness to uh, to start thinking about a reparation framework for victims of sexual violence right now, but also for those who reparations are are, are still outstanding as the victims of 2014, 15 and beyond. Uh, and I think uh, there's an opportunity there to really also show other countries, the international communities, reparations need to come early. And also, Esther, I have another question, because what you are saying, I mean, I think that Generally, what we used to think, now that paradigm is changing, is that reparations are access to justice, and access to justice, what does that mean? I don't know, criminal law, for example. Um, we need, for example, also enacted new laws. Which law? A victim's law, yeah. Uh, we need 
people used to believe that there was a list that you just have to check. Victims have completely different um, needs, each victim. So in how do you address all these needs in these programs that are trying to to address the, the challenges that the victims are facing in the early stage? Because maybe one victim needs, I don't know, education, house, um, food, or maybe one victim, one, to, one, I don't know, one woman wants to start to get access to justice and she's looking, for example, not criminal law, but uh, let's say um, a completely different kind of justice, let's say administrative, I don't, um, I don't know. So how, how do you actually create a program that will, um, that will address this kind of challenge? Mm. I think again, it's really about collaborating with the victims themselves. We call that co-creation goes much further than consultation. It's really working together as equal partners, understanding what victims really want and what would serve them best, but also um, benefiting from their expertise, from their creative solutions, etc. And one of the challenges, for example, that we often are asked about is what about um, victims who will come forward pretending that they're a victim of sexual violence, but actually they're not. What we really see in our project is, first of all, it doesn't happen very often, but second of all, um, these solutions and how do you prevent that? They can only be really uh, developed with victims themselves. It's them in our projects coming up with the ideas on how do you go about the verification and the accreditation, etc. So uh, when it comes to what victims want, it is really talking uh, talking to the victims. And um, what we see in most of our projects is that the many victims actually uh, do have similar priorities, specifically within a, a given context. So, for example, something that comes back again and again is the request to support to set up uh, a business to make to make a livelihood again. That's often seen as the very first step to also start exiting that continued cycle of stigma and violence uh, and with that uh, financial uh, support as well. So not just the training, but also actually the, the money that will allow them to set up a business, for example. The other thing that strikes me is that all victims are asking for education for their children. Um, the children are often the first ones that they start talking about when, 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 when people speak about what does reparation mean to you. Uh, so we see a lot of commonalities, but there also needs to be really room for flexibility. And with that, develop reparation programs with victims groups. That's, that's for me really key. Our discussion today is on sexual violence in conflict. Um, and how to end that stigma for people in society. Um, but I believe that it, for survivors of sexual violence, it's actually stigma is something that people face or tend to face the world over. And I was wondering if you had any input on what maybe can be done in society more generally to to combat this type of stigma that people do face. Yeah. 
I, I, it's a, it's a, a big theme, of course. Um, absolutely, sexual violence in conflict is ab- tied in with sexual violence, gender-based violence around the world, and uh, the victim blaming and the shaming, etc., is not unique to conflict settings. It happens all around the world, and I think, thankfully, we're seeing change there. We're seeing a bigger uh, movement of people that really stand with survivors. Uh, that support them and that uh, start blaming uh, the perpetrators and shaming the perpetrators uh, publicly in the media, etc. And that's really what we need everywhere. Uh, and I think that that's key. I don't the the ending impunity because it's also this impunity that that just sort of maintains that blame with the victim instead of the per- perpetrator. So I think we need to keep our uh, maintain our outrage against all forms of gender-based violence and sexual violence in conflict and outside conflict. We need to keep talking about it, raising awareness uh, about what is happening, raising our children, uh, condemn the perpetrators, and also those that are allowing the violence to uh, to happen. But of course, that, that will come with uh, a revolution, potentially, and really shifting uh, shifting attitudes. No longer blaming victims and uh, yeah, g- global movement to end gender-based violence. That uh, I'll, I'll be part of it. Certainly, seems that great progress has been made in recent years. A lot more has to be made, but hopefully, things will, with advocacy from organisations such as the Global Survivors Fund, begin to make that journey and make that progress. Um, in terms legislatively um i guess in international law and international criminal law what do you think can be done in terms of prevention mm. well in prevention i think there's some quite interesting work happening um uh, led by by uh, uh academia particularly looking at the causes of conflict-related sexual violence, understanding those causes, which can then feed into the design of prevention mechanisms. It's really important. We need to look at that seriously. Um, But again, what I'd like to say that victims are often really left out of the picture when it comes to studies, when it comes to international law. So really looking at the the, the victim's perspective that I really think there's a lot to gain there. Um, Victims are no longer always silent and uh, giving them that space and the floor to really participate is really important. Um, But also holding states accountable. I think states need to hold each other accountable for implementing and living up to all the agreements that they've signed up to and all the laws and and, uh, regional uh, mechanisms, etc., that are already in place. Why are governments not living up to their responsibility? And I think holding each other accountable—that's really important going forward. And I and I and I'm quite hopeful that we will see more of that in the future. Uh, perhaps an example that I can mention when it comes to states encouraging each other to take the responsibility and holding each other accountable. What we've seen over the last decade is really, and rightly so, 
is, for example, when a gov when there's a country in their reconstruction phase after a conflict, that international donors request that uh, reintegration programs are set up for children associated with armed forces or formerly associated with armed forces. And that's really important. But we don't see that same conditioning and commitment when it comes to the victims. So, for example, uh, one country that is supporting the construction of another country saying, okay, you're getting this loan, you're getting this support, but you need to set up a reparation programs for the victims of sexual violence and other grave crimes. Those are quite concrete things that I think need to can, that can happen in terms of um, everyone taking responsibility. And that leads me to another question, Esther. Um, from an international scale to a personal scale, what can people do to assist, or assist in the fight against sexual violence and conflict? What can the everyday person do? Well, I think everyday Every person in their everyday life can take little steps to fight sexual violence uh, and gender-based violence uh, that we see occurring around us everywhere. So that's part of that really changing that culture. Uh, and that culture is connected all around the world. So that, that, is, that is one thing. But I also really think educate, educate yourself about what is happening in conflict. We talked about it at the beginning, of course, there's very grave forms of sexual violence that are currently being committed in at least 10 countries in the world. Uh, we don't hear about it enough. We don't see about it enough. And that's partly due to the sensitivities, but it's also the will. So I really think that everyone needs to help raise awareness about this is what is happening. It's brutal. And uh, it requires actually a much larger outcry. The outcry that we see now in Ukraine I think everyone is contributing to that now on social media by talking about it in your in your with your friends and the family. We need to do that for every time sexual violence every time sexual violence is used as a weapon of war in a conflict. And I think we all have a responsibility there and can make a contribution. You said that there are only not for example development banks they have an opportunity there. But also um I'm, I think about for example Africa or Latin America that they have the um, the international human rights courts. Do you think that in, in the role of the international human rights courts is important and that there is an opportunity there to increase the rights for victims who have faced sexual uh, violence? You know, whether it is international courts, uh, national courts, international justice mechanisms such as the ICC, I think there is need for a global trend to start putting reparations on the agenda. For generations, not only have victims been waiting, but also we haven't spoken much about reparations. Like I said, the, the frameworks are there, the UN principles are there, but we haven't prioritized that. And courts haven't either. It's always come as an aftermath after a judicial process. And I think that needs to change. And that's where regional courts can really make a contribution as well, uh, which will hopefully trickle down also to, to domestic um, judicial systems. So that reparations actually becomes something very normal. We now often talk about prevention and response. And in my view, it should be prevention, 
care, response, and reparations. And Esther, keeping an eye on the time, I was wondering if there's anything else that you would like to add today to our discussion. Not really. I think we've touched on a lot. And I think, I hope what what, what resonates really is that we need to uh, stand with survivors. Uh, that is really what reparations is also about, and not only in certain countries, but all around the world. And I think another key point maybe to re-emphasize is that we need to move to making, co-creating with survivors, with survivor movements, network, etc., not as an exception, but really as the, the new normal and the way forward. Yeah, so you've certainly given us a lot of food for thought today about things that not only the international community can do, but we as everyday people can do to try and take steps to support those survivors. And we'd like to thank you for joining us today and sharing all your wonderful insights. And also just to thank you for the excellent work that you do more generally in your advocacy and all that you do to work with and advocate for victims of sexual violence. Thank you, Katie and Pamela. It was really a pleasure talking to you. And thank you very much for your interest in this topic. Thank you for listening to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. The podcast is brought to you by the Upstream Journal. I invite you to consider supporting the program and the magazine with a contribution through PayPal as you explore other episodes.